Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And as the name would suggest, this is a very different podcast, or if you will, oddcast, because we aspire to have real different conversations, conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies with the courage to stand out. And we hope these conversations inspire, educate, and entertain you. On this episode, uh, a very special uh, episode. It's the second in a two-part series we've done recently about two of the most legendary category king, category queen companies in the world, Netflix and Amazon. On episode 113, we had a real different conversation with Mark Randolph, who's the founding CEO of Netflix. And on this episode, John Rossman, author, author of the fantastic book, Think Like Amazon, and he was the executive at Amazon who started their marketplace business. We have a fun and insightful conversation about how Amazon became arguably the most innovative category queen in the world, and most importantly, how you can learn how to think like Amazon in your career, especially about how to be a digital business like Amazon that innovates across entire value chains in mega categories. Also pay attention to John's thoughts on how to make wise bets on new business ideas and when to go for it and when to quit. Now, our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data, and they bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. And if you want to bring data to everything, check out splunk.com D2E. That's Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D the number two E, as in data to everything. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite want to help you turbocharge the growth of your business. NetSuite is the number one company in cloud ERP. And if you want the platform that will allow you to go from the garage to the IPO and beyond, go to netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different. Uh, and now, with no further ado, Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. about a digital or a data-driven business as distinct from, you know, a traditional uh, kind of business? Yeah, that's, I, I think, a great question. And, and obviously, there's lots, there's room for a lot of ideas or answers to, to your question. But the way I think about being digital and everybody thinks about it, you know, from a maybe a technology standpoint, um, but I really think of it as like the attributes of the organization and how we work. And I equate it to kind of two athletic sounding attributes that sound similar, but are really different. And I think that being digital is about the first attribute being speed um, and the second attribute being agility. If you think about what speed is as an athlete, it's really about doing a repetitive motion extremely well and extremely efficiently. Well, in business terms, that's operational excellence. And so part of being digital is about the eternal pursuit of, of becoming perfect. How do we reduce cycle times, improve quality, reduce costs, cut out little pieces of friction for both our customers and our, and our employees? 
And then the second attribute is agility. And agility is the ability to sense and make change happen. Sometimes that's small change, sometimes that's big change. But organizations need to become pros, be constant in how do we innovate. And I really think that it's both of those attributes that you need to become a truly digital company. And then when you have those, well, then you use different types of technology and you use data in a different way in the pursuit of those two missions. Um, and so that's how I think about digital. It's both about operational excellence and being innovative. Um, and the fact that you, you have to have both of those capabilities as a, as a team and as an organization. So I think I get, I think I get all that. It makes total sense. Um, and when I think about innovation or for that matter, agility, um, and speed, I think it's, it's easy for one to think of it in the context of the way things are, as opposed to the way things could be. And so, and, and you talk about it in your book, the technology allows for new types of businesses. I recently found out about a small so software startup here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Zone Haven. And they are building a purpose-built set of applications and capabilities to help identify fires as they start so that fire departments, A, know quicker, B, they can begin planning evacuations, and C, because they're using um, IoT sensors all over the place and they triangulate it with weather information, uh, with the topology of the landscape, with the, with, the, the, with the ultimate urban plan that's around where the environment is, and a whole bunch of other factors, they, they use sort of for lack of a better term, big data to, in a very real-time way, connect all those dots to A, not only inform firefighters, but B, help them in a more predictive way, figure out where the fire might be going and help them figure out who to evacuate, how to evacuate them, where to evacuate them, et cetera. And so it's, it's really a whole reimagined idea around some very forward-leaning technologies that bring a whole bunch of this shit together to make something completely new possible that if you'd said, hey, uh, firefighting automation five years ago, at least my brain wouldn't have gone to some of these things. And so I guess I say all that as a precursor to how do you, how do you begin to think in these sort of big new ways that embrace uh, uh, new paradigms, new niches, new tr true steps forward, true exponential steps forward? Well, um, Amazon's answer to that, um, their, their philosophy or their technique is called start with the customer and work backwards. And so I think in, in your case, um, and that's exactly what a company like Zonehaven and their, their clients and partners have done is they've started with a problem. They started with a customer and then work backwards to solutions versus the other way around and saying like, Hey, we've got a cool technology and how do we, how do we take it forward? Um, and I think the other aspect of that is, is kind of, you know, this, this notion of working in the future. And part of working in the future is there's a time and a place for unconstrained thinking, right? And so it's like how asking questions like how would we uh, predict fires, shorten the cycle time for firefighters to get there, um, compress the time to put out the fire and make it completely safe for firefighters, right? And just brainstorm all the, the problems and points of friction and challenges we have and how we could solve those. 
And then there's a component to, well, then how would we actually do that? Like, what could we do? How could it be affordable? How would it be deployable? How would it be operational? But what happens is too, too quickly when teams are brainstorming is all of these constraints come into our, our brain. And, and so there's, it needs to be this period of time where it's like unconstrained thinking. And then we put constraints on it. We put timelines on it. We put budgets on it. We put simple tests in place in order to do it. And so you really have to be, I think, uh, deliberate in understanding, well, which, which part of kind of solutioning on this are we at and what's the right mindset? What's the right tool? What's the right approach in order to do that? And, th- and those, those get to many of the, the ideas that I, that I break out is like, okay, so what are the right tools that you can use at certain points in that journey? So I love that. And I, I you know, and maybe you can hear it in my voice. You know, I, I've been doing this for 30 years, plus or minus. And I'm more excited about what's possible today than ever before, because I think there's a level of creativity and a level of like exponential breakthroughs happening across multiple technologies that are all coming together in fascinating ways to allow us to do things uh, in a completely new way. And so um, maybe I could jump to idea 39. Uh, I thought this was a fascinating fucking really smart idea here, John. (laughs) Uh, Architecture is the business strategy winning through technology and architecture. So could you maybe help bring that, those sets of ideas alive for me? Yeah. So um, a lot of companies view just, you know, kind of their technology and operations as more or less a cost of doing business. And they build it for just like, what needs to happen today, and they don't do it in a planful way. And so the story I tell in this idea, uh, which is architecture is the business strategy, it's really about that, that you have to plan forward on how you build things because the constraints, the flexibility, the adaptability of how you build your operations, how you build your technology architecture is going to either be a key enabler or a key a key retardant, a key constraint in your ability to compete going forward. My whole goal is to give a business person who's not a technology architect a set of tools and questions that they can ask to be a better partner with their technology expert. And so what I outlined in here was was really the uh, a discussion I had with a, a, a guy that I've worked with for a very long period of time. And, and this friend, his name's Paul Tiernan, he always talked about like, well, John, your architecture needs to give you the iddities. And I'm like, what, what are the iddities? And, he, and, he, and he's like, well, your architecture needs to give you scalability. Your architecture needs to give you security. Your, your architecture needs to give you flexibility. Your architecture needs to give you measurability. And so I just kind of outline about 15 different attributes. Not that you're going to have them all and you can only optimize on a few, but you, as a, as a team, you need to think through like, how do we build stuff in a planful way, not just for how we envision the business today, but also to give ourselves flexibility going forward in the future. And, and that is the art of architecture, um, both in the real physical world, as well as in the, in the business, how we construct our processes and how we construct our technology. Hmm. I just love how you focus in on this, especially, if, uh, you know, uh, at least having read your book, it feels like it's certainly applicable to IT leaders and professionals, but you're, you're aiming it at a general business executive audience. I am writing to a, a business person who needs to figure out how do we compete differently? Like that's my, that's my target reader. 
Yeah. And uh, like, for example, not long ago, we had Eric Yuan on, who's the founder and CEO of Zoom. And, you know, uh, the architecture of his technology and his business model, which you could argue is the architecture of his business, um, is a huge part of why they're successful because all those illities, and I, I like the way you talk about that, um, are present in his business. And, and in, you know, I think it's six or seven years, he's built a 20 plus billion dollar market cap company and became a billionaire. And I think it's maybe easier to envision why this is important if you're a technology company, but the future of great businesses and the future of great customer experiences are typically going to be by interconnecting products and capabilities across multiple enterprises. And so part of my thesis, and I don't think it's a big leap, which is we're all going to have to become good at the things that enable us to connect our products, connect our services, connect our enterprises in more flexible, nimble, and affordable manners going forward. So so these entities are going to become more and more important to every business, not just pure technology businesses. Yeah. And of course, it's been said many times, but every technology company is a software company. And, you know, many of the big banks in the United States have way more engineers than some of the largest software companies in the world writing software. So, yeah, I hear you. Now, all this leads me to idea 28. Think differently. Uh, Improve your questions. And it's always fascinating to me. One of my favorite expressions, John, is um, are we having the right conversation? as a way to try to sort of jar myself and others that I'm working with to think about things from multiple uh, perspectives. And one of the things I learned early in my career is, you know, ask why seven times. And so I just love this thinking that you have about how to think differently about things. And, um, you know, I, I'd love to hear more about your ideas on this. Well, I think one of the things um, I always think about this is, is, you know, Make sure you're taking the time to really understand the customer, really understand the problem you're trying to solve, really understand the root cause behind those problems, not the easy symptoms, but the root causes, and really boiling down questions and solutions to a set of constraints that help you then think of a different approach to solve the problem. So for Example, I think oftentimes we think of improving something like, well, how do I take 10% of the cost out? How do I take 10% of the cycle time out? Versus a question like, how would this work if I would take the cycle time from two hours to one second? Wow. You know, imagine you're talking about like, I don't know, some sort of cell phone provisioning or something like that, right? Well, you would have to completely rethink so many more things to take the cycle time down to near real time versus a couple hour legs. That's going to put you in a different mindset in order to solve that problem. And so I think thinking about those things up front, asking the right questions, thinking about how do you shorten cycle times, radically improve quality, um, radically reduce contacts those types of questions are going to force you to really challenge the assumptions of how it works, what the customer experience is and what the business model is. And it seems like I'll just say it. I'm not a thousand percent. I agree with it. I think I do, but I'll say it out loud to see how it sounds that um, Amazon and Bezos might be the greatest entrepreneurial company of the modern age. And the reason I say that is, is 
all the stuff you unpack in your book. And it led to, A, the largest e-commerce business in the world, B, the largest marketplace business in the world, which, of course, you helped pioneer, which last time you came on, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, the fact that Amazon beat eBay is a stunning thing. Uh, but the third one that the average consumer doesn't know, and of course, those of us in the tech world understand deeply, is that Amazon Web Services uh, contributes more than half the profits, if I'm not, if I'm remembering right. That's right. And is the fastest growing enterprise software um, technology company, I believe, in history. I mean, it's a, what, 40 plus billion dollar business growing at plus or minus 35% a year. Am, am, I, That's right. rough, am I roughly in the ballpark? You're, you're right on. In fact, I think they just reported 37% year over year growth yesterday. So, so in AWS. So you sit there and go, what, what, what? Hold on. Biggest e-commerce business, biggest e-commerce marketplace business, and giant, fastest growing Sort of never been seen before enterprise technology provider. And, and funnily enough, the average consumer doesn't even know that part's there. <laughs> and so and, and, and there's other and there's other components of the business, right? Logistics business, content businesses, device businesses, publishing businesses. Like it, it's a it's a modern day uh conglomerate. And so, you know, whether they're the most innovative or not, like I think, you know, can be a, a healthy conversation, but they are definitely. The, the broadest. Um, and, and I think part of it is, is from a leadership standpoint, this notion of we are explorers and we're never going to let today's business, today's job limit what the, what the future could be. And we're always going to allocate an appropriate enough time and enough resources in creating that future. We're never going to starve off the oxygen needed to create the future. We know we have to be deliberate upon it, which is really the thesis for a lot of the conversations I have is I'll always ask uh, a group of leaders like who here believes that innovation is critical for their, for their business success over the next five to 10 years, you know, 90% of the audience will raise their hand, right? Then I'll ask who has a deliberate process for how you innovate in your business, about 2% will raise their hands, right? And so there's that disconnect between we know we have to innovate, but we're kind of hoping that it happens. We're not being deliberate about it. And so it, it, from my standpoint, like I think you have to be deliberate about things if you want them to happen in a systematic, predictable, and repeatable fashion. So one of my favorite expressions is it takes courage to be legendary. And, you know, some businesses have a legitimate problem where they run out of ideas. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're at a C-level executive at any meaningful company and you run out of ideas, you deserve to be shot. But that's, <laughs> that's just my opinion. But let's say, you know, there are a lot of companies that have good ideas and uh, things they want to explore. And yet some of them require a level of risk and a level of uh, being radical around whether it's products or technologies or go-to-market or new category creation or whatever the things are. And we're just so drawn to the way that it is and so uh, adverse to being radical and taking some of these risks. How do you, particularly when you go in now as an advisor, how do you give executive teams sort of a courage injection, uh, particularly based on what you learned at Amazon? Well, I think um, boards and leadership teams are they're, they're less skeptical that it can happen to them. Now they're more like, we know it can happen. We just don't know how to go about it. 
And the other big challenge they have is they, they, they don't understand that type of risk relative to other types of risks um, in their business. And, and they don't realize that the way you counter the risk of being disrupted is by investing and by innovating, but you have to be do it in a, in a different governance approach, a different uh, cycle than you do operating the rest of your business. And they, they tend to meld them all together and that doesn't work out. And so I tend to have a pretty easy time, like, do we need to innovate? And it's more of a tough time of like, guess what? We're going to have to invest it means we're going to have to, um, uh, it, it's going to impact our short-term profitability. I can't tell you exactly what the ROI is going to be. I, you know, this is a long circuitous route we're going under. If you stick with it, we will have success. But if you are impatient and if you want predictability, then this isn't the game for you. That's more of kind of the challenge um, and the conversation that I have with leaders now is just like, okay, this is different than the rest of your business. Everything that you learn about how you run projects, how you budget, how you do all that, that doesn't work when we're talking about our innovation portfolio. We have to run this as, with separate mindsets and separate approaches. So I, I get that part. And I think some companies are smart enough, courageous enough to take a handful of people. And you know, you talk about the two pizza rule, which I love, which we can talk about and, and sort of put a, put a bunch of people here over in the corner, take them out of the as-is business, have them live in the world of the quote-unquote art of the possible and, and come up with dream and scheme, a big new breakthrough. When they do, typically, the more exponential that is, uh, the more, A, threatening it is to the as-is business, and B, uh, very hard to put together. It may, mean a change, it may mean a change. You know, If I look at the technology industry, the successful companies that are still pioneering today made this giant shift in the software business from perpetual to subscription and cloud. Well, if you're an existing public company and you make that shift, now, that's a lot harder than if you were a Benioff or, or uh, you know, a ServiceNow or a Workday, these kinds of companies that started that way. And so there, there's that kind of courage, right? That's a big shift. But there's also like you have to introduce a whole new set. You talk about metrics and talk about Wall Street. And you may take a huge dip in your stock if your business model means that, you know, your cash position is going to get impacted or uh, you're going to tank your earnings projections for the next year because as, as Bezos has done in the past, you say, hey, we're investing in X, Y, or Z and forget all those, those uh, the guidance we gave you. It's out the window and you suffer a massive tanking of the stock. And, and so these things have very large implications and sometimes they're very disruptive to our own business. And so how do you think through A, making those kinds of giant exponential decisions and then B, mustering the courage to stand there in front of your shareholders and say, uh, strap yourself in, folks. Well, there's no easy uh, elixir uh, for that. And it, I think it's why the success of companies going between generations is is pretty lousy, you know, and everything, right? Because it's not just the courage, but, but it's a risky uh, jump that they're being made. Um, I think it's appropriate, always about appropriate resource allocation and taking the appropriate amount to put at risk in creating the next generation business models. But also back to the speed element of becoming digital, it's how do we take what we have and continue to make it better, more flexible, 
cheaper, easier to operate, higher quality, more customer focus. And as much innovation comes from that than it does from completely changing the business model. It's not always the right path to change business models. Oftentimes, it's just innovation within our current channels, our current product, really our current business model, but pressing it to make it better and better. And then the excess proceeds from that operational excellence mindset can help fund then the smaller allocation that we need to give to truly kind of break through business model ideas. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, something that maybe gets over-indexed, which is it's not always about complete business model change. It is about just, you know, new services, new products, new pricing, and, and driving to make it easier for the customers. And expanding into new customer needs. One of the things about being customer focused, one of the great advantages of being customer focused versus product led is that when you're customer focused, your customers always have more problems. You just have the the question of, well, are those good problems for me to solve or not, right? And so if you're curious about what's going on with your customers and your customers' customers, you're going to find new problems, new pieces of value that you can help solve. And then you can decide, how do I, do I want to expand into this? And I think that's one of the, the mindsets that Amazon has always had is they're always very curious about expanding horizontally into a category, into a business and not, and how we serve a customer today does not define how we're going to solve them and, and or serve that customer in the future. And one of the fascinating things I'd love for you to maybe shed some light on is to your point on customer centricity, uh, Amazon is also smart, it appears to me as an outsider looking in, at looking at the whole, and I know this may be sound overly jargony, but the value creation chain, you know, the whole value chain. And so if I, if I look at the core books thing as a simple example, who would have known in the beginning in the late 90s that Amazon would not only um, create a whole new category and in, in, innovative experience on, on consumption, whether at the beginning it's ordering physical books, and then of course it's the Kindle, but people forget Amazon has also created radical innovation, and I would call it a category creation on production. That is to say, they are the self-publisher of choice. Uh, my first book was was, push, was published by a, a traditional publisher. My second book I did uh, as an Amazon self-publish. As a result, way more books are being published than ever before. And so they've actually increased the pie of written uh, you know, work and and they're on all they're they're at the front end of the experience, on the back end of the creation, and in the middle of the whole value chain. And I think the value chain is the the key word there, which is understanding the broader value chain of of the customer and ecosystem that you're participating in. You may be just in this piece, a small narrow section today, looking upstream and downstream, looking where you know there's a lack of integration a lack of transparency, uh, uh, a bad customer experience, and excess margins, right? Excess margins are always the fuel that helps create the willingness for customers to switch is because they know, like, I am paying an excess amount to, you know, a distribution channel or to whoever it is when they're not providing value. And so looking horizontally up and down the value stream and looking for those um, attributes is is really, I think, one of the major ways that companies um, innovate uh, without you know cannibalizing their existing businesses. 
the other thing, you know, I think off the top, you talked about speed in this context. I think of it just as an author. And I know you've gone through, I think, a similar experience. When you work with a traditional publisher, you spend, you know, a year and a half, two years, whatever it is, writing your book, right? As the kinds of books you write are very seriously researched and thought through and whatever. So there's a meaningful commitment of time. And in a traditional world, you hand that over to your publisher and like, if you're lucky, see in 10 months, right? Whereas in the self-published Amazon world, you work on your book for a year and a half, two years, you get the final edit, you get your artwork, you do all that stuff. You press a button and you're in business tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've learned a lot through the publishing world. I have done both self-publishing and gone with a traditional publisher. Both have pluses and minuses uh, to it. And, you know, the cycle time is one of those major uh, trade-offs as well as kind of your your ability on pricing and where margin flows to and everything, right? And, and it's just like all of life. It's just a matter of making sure you understand what the pluses and minuses and the trade-offs are and and making the best decision you can at that point in time. I want you touch about on something in the book in a couple different ways. And I think it's very fascinating to me. You know, really having grown up in the tech world, um, the the headset, I think, of a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurial companies as they're planning to go public and so forth is the ultimate metric, the ultimate thing that matters inside the company. I'm not talking about the difference that we make outside, but in terms of inside is we want to build a long-term enduring value company. And as a result, the metric that matters is what I would characterize as enduring market cap or, you know, ultimately you want to be public, so it's market cap. In the beginning, of course, it's valuation when you're private. And we've seen time and time again, Amazon not care about traditional types of metrics, uh, particularly profitability. And for a long time in the beginning, and you talk about it in the book, you know, there was a decade plus where Amazon was either not or barely. And there have been times where it was verging on, you know, good profitability and whacked it back to make investments, sometimes in things that failed, like the Fire Phone and sometimes the Kindle that succeeded, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so my point is most people value most businesses as a function of earnings per share. And it would appear that Amazon, for the most part, has said, I, we don't care that much about that metric. We care more about long-term sustainable value as it relates to creating and dominating new markets. But that's my interpretation reading your book. I'm, I'm curious how you think about it. Well, I think it's also just a function of, of timing is, well, when do you want that optimal earnings per share? And Amazon sees the world that there's so much opportunity, right? It's day one still relative to how the internet and how technology can impact customers that, that they are doing a disservice to their shareholders by trying to optimize for short-term gap profitability versus investing in those businesses. And I think what's always important for, you know, to look when you're looking at a company like Amazon is you have to separate out kind of the operating metrics and financials versus the excess of that and what they're investing either to scale or in, or in innovative ideas. And Amazon, I think, is just kind of perfected like here's our operating business and the margins around that operating business, but we we are best at taking the excess of that and instead of returning it as dividends, instead of returning it in earning reporting it as earnings per share, we're investing in the future, and I think that's a a, a long term perspective. Obviously, it's not for every company, 
Um, but that's the path that they've chosen. And they tell that story and they demonstrate the results of that so well by growth metrics that, you know, everybody agrees with essentially the calculus of it is like, yeah, you know, that's why their, their earnings per share is so, so far higher than most other companies is because they are investing in the future. Now, one of the, so I, I think this is one of the things that makes, uh, Bezos a genius. Uh, and whenever I have this conversation, you know, cocktail party conversation, invariably somebody goes, uh, look, it's easy for him. He's the founder. He has voting preferences. It's impossible for, for all practical purposes to fire him. And so, you know, he can tank the stock whenever he wants, make strategic investments, and they sort of brush it to the side as like, he doesn't really count. Because if you're, a, if you're a traditional CEO, or maybe you're a founder who, for one reason or another, doesn't have the equity position that he has, or whatever it is, right? You're a hired, hired CEO. You could be fired. And so... Wall Street always gets blamed for the short-sightedness of companies. And so I guess what insight would you have for me to counter that argument, and particularly for that of a CEO who's maybe not a founder with a controlling interest? Well, I think that's why the, the, the board has to buy into the plan. And I think that so many boards are focused in a you know two to five-year uh, cycle versus a long-term cycle. And I think that those, those cadence imbalances, like, Hey, I'm trying to build for a 20 year business, but you know, you want the optimization for a three to five year business, right? Well, we're going to do completely different things if we're going to optimize for sh- the midterm or short term versus for the long term. And that's why I think it's so, so it's, it's critical that the board spends more time on the future and being deliberate about, well, what do we want to trade off here? What do we want to optimize for? How do we want to innovate? What are the right metrics for innovation for our business? And, and you have to match those things up. And because it's the board, it's not the street that fires the CEO, it's the, it's the board that fires, it hires and fires the CEO, right? And so I think so oftentimes it's, it's, um, it's the board's presence and, and they, they, they're really trying to optimize for short-term results versus investing in the future. And that's why I keep coming back to that theme of like, you know, you have to be planful about it and you, and you do have to be good at, at forecasting what the impact um, will be, but it's a different storyline that you're telling. John, is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> Bless no you. comment. No comment. No, it is not. In any way, it is not wrong. I, I love it because um, you know we see this all the time, right? And the great public companies I've been associated with, um, the CEO does a very thoughtful job constructing the board and working with the board and engaging in a strategic dialogue. So I'm curious, what time? If let's say I'm the I'm on the board of an Amazon or I'm on the board of it, you know, pick your company. Uh, if I'm the modern board director, that's awesome. What, what headset should I have around timeframes? And then I want to get to this whole portfolio discussion, which I, I think sits inside of this. Well, I think, I think like any types of, of metrics, you have to think about both input metrics and output metrics, right? And, and in my experience, boards don't have the right metrics like they don't know how to evaluate well am i being innovative or not enough or not right and so it's really about creating that set of both input ideas and output ideas and metrics 
to, to come to a, an agreed upon plan and then keep that conversation going just as you do with your operating company, looking at results. How do we look at both the input metrics and the output metrics of how we're innovating and putting pressure, optics, resources, best thinking towards, you know, the, the, the future businesses of the business? Yeah. I, I also, I'm curious. So you're building out this portfolio. You talk, I think, fantastically about, you know, failing and learning and all the good stuff. And we've got people eating two pizzas, trying the new shit. We're launching some of that shit. What I'm very curious about, you know, particularly after just having um, had a conversation with Mark Randolph, who's the original founder and CEO of, um, of Netflix. And by the way, his book uh, is, is, is also wonderful. It's called This, this That Won't Work. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, he, he I don't want to steal the thunder, but he tells a fascinating story in that book about um, how they almost sold the Blockbuster and then it didn't work. And they were they were in terrible shape and they would have taken the deal if they'd gotten any kind of economics that made sense and, and how they were just essentially forced to go forward because they had, you know, it's like that scene from Officer <laughs> and a Gentleman, right? I got yeah. nowhere else to go. And so through an Amazon lens, how do you sort of, and this idea of a portfolio of innovative shit that we're doing, how do we decide we're, we're going to exit with the fire phone because we can't make that work, but we're like tripling down on AWS and we're bringing out new models of Kindles and we're going to, you know, so how do they make those, you know, fund or kill type decisions? Well, uh, two quick thoughts on that would be first is, especially when you're trying something new, the metrics that matter are always about adoption, right? And so the market will tell you whether you should keep at it or exit. And I think it's the market that is told companies like Amazon, keep going in this direction and stop in this direction. But the other lesson to learn from that is it gets a whole lot easier to start and stop and to exit and to pivot if your commitment levels are are smaller, right? Um, and it's when we raise the stakes by making big commitments or making big capital outlays before we've proven the business that make it so difficult to to learn and and fail forward. And I think that you know that every company has its bruising moments of like, oh, we really thought that was going to work. But one of the things Amazon tends to do well is build something, try it, and then figure out how to, how to scale it. So if you look at like the Amazon Go store, they've been at that for a number of years. There's 12 stores today. They are obviously still working at perfecting something, whether it's operational or business model or merchandising or just customer adoption. They're still figuring something out. And when they figure it out, then they'll scale. The mistake most companies would make is they would take something like the Amazon Go and they would have just scaled it. And then it's like, we're not quite getting the results we need. And then you've got a real financial disaster on your hand. And so I think that that, that patience level of letting things incubate until they're really, really ready to commit to, that's one of the championship habits that good innovative companies have, the discipline of being patient to let things figure out before we commit to it. Hmm. I find that fascinating, particularly because if I think about sort of the core commerce and marketplace businesses, and then AWS, um, at least again, as an outsider and sort of having tracked the company since you know pretty much the beginning, those businesses at a certain point in time 
required a massive amount of infrastructure investment to be able to get to those illities you talked about before, particularly scalability, right? If you think about where, where AWS is today and how much of the compute on planet Earth it runs, you know, they got to be way ahead of every, like, you know, we have the holiday season coming up and then you got, you know, Mother's Day and Valentine. You know, there's so many businesses, of course, their own, as well as all the businesses on AWS that have these massive you know, load increases. And so my point is, over and over again, Amazon has seems to have gotten to some place where they go, yep, bam. And then they massively overinvest on infrastructure and, and the abilities, as you talked about them earlier. How do I think about where's that magic line to know we're hitting, we're, we sort of hit the vein in the, in the new category in the marketplace. And now I'm going to go from being somewhat parsimonious and in test mode to, holy shit, let's build data centers everywhere on planet Earth. I, I think it's really at that point where, you know, customers are selling themselves, right? Where you have a, a virtuous cycle of, of not just sign up, but use adoption and where they're asking for more. And that's really when you have that, that, ability for the business, the product, the service to, to repeatedly sell, that's the point that you lean forward and go, okay, how do we scale? But until you have that type of reaction and you really understand your unit economics, you're still figuring something out and you have to resist that willingness to like commit big to it. Fantastic. Now, you also touch on something that's near and dear to my my soul, which is this distinction between missionaries and mercenaries. And it's right up at the front of the book. And A, I'd love your take on it. And B, I'd love to know why you put it so, so you know, far, far, far front up in the book, if I could put it that way. Well, I put it up in the front of the book because the front of the book, I tried to deal with more culture issues than, than you know, some of the business tactics and strategy tactics and things like that. And because it has to do in Amazon's case with being customer obsessed and, and the general notion is, is, you know, in companies is like, well, everybody has to come in with this certain, you know, notion or mission or, or, or level of commitment. And, and I have a little softer take on that, which is, which is you do need people like that in the organization, but not everybody is going to come in with it. So then the real question is, well, how do you build it, right? So how do I build patriots out of the mercenaries that join my team? And I think the best way to do it, well, there's really two tactics. One is every day, we always need to talk about whatever the mission is. Everything we do has to be, has to start with our mission. In Amazon's case, it's every discussion starting with the customer. In other missions, just integrate that mission discussion into everything. And over time, your team will pick it up and, and your mercenaries will become patriots. And, and mm. I think the second thing to do is on a personal level, you just have to make sure you understand like, well, how does this company, how does this company's mission match into what their personal goals and their personal objectives are? And if you can't find any connection there, then it probably isn't the right person for the organization. But there's typically a way to really connect what they are passionate about, what their mission is into the company's mission if, if they're there. And so it's always about how do you take mercenaries and turn them into patriots over time? Hmm. That's that's, that, that's my perspective. Uh, yeah. Because you know, we'd like a perfect world where you know everybody's an A plus person and everybody's absolutely committed to the cause. Well, that's that's not the real world, right? You're going to be highly constrained in your ability to attract the right talent. 
okay, the, then the trick is how do I take what I have and, and, and morph it over time into the team that I need? That's an interesting perspective, John. I, you know, and maybe it's just kind of where I'm at in life. I think one of the biggest tragedies is that you would go to work 40 to 60 hours a week at something that was drudgery for you, right? I forget who said it, but I love the quote, death isn't the greatest tragedy in life. What dies inside us while we live is. And to me, there's nothing more soul-sucking than a job that you hate. And, you know, my friend Mike Maples, the legendary VC, says, start or join a company worthy of your talent. And so I live in this fantasy land in my head where I wish that one day everybody feels like they're, they're a missionary at work because what they do matters in some way. And I think at some element, you, you absolutely need that connection, but you can also become more aligned with the mission of a company. But so oftentimes a company doesn't have a real mission other than optimizing profitability, right? Um, and, and I think that is a, that, that one in particular is going to, you know, you're going you're gonna to get what you're creating there, right? Which is a team that is solely focused on short-term profitability. Yeah. Now, I love number 13, blow up the org chart. <laughs> and I have found that a lot of people, even senior executives, get stuck in their own org. And my interpretation, but I want yours, of course, is that the more legendary the executive, the more legendary they are cross-functionally. Yeah, I think that um, all too often people are way too respectful of the job, the title, the org chart and seniority versus you know, demanding like what is right is right. You know, what did John Adams say? You know, facts are stubborn things, right? And and so I think that we we let too many other things relative to the organization get in the way. And I think one of the secrets is is understanding org charts and roles and descriptions and job categories are helpful in some things, but they're really get in the way of doing some other things. And no matter how your org is structured, you're typically going to do, you want to be doing things that are working across the organization. So having a healthy awareness and to some degree, healthy disdain for the organization structure is a, is an additive to how you get things done. So it's not that we don't have organizations. It's just that relative to, you know, solving customer problems, doing what's right, innovating, typically those things need to go across the organization and we need to buy into the mission of doing that versus being respectful to our org chart. I mean, I don't have any data about this. Maybe you do, but uh, the most legendary companies I've ever seen or been associated with, uh, everybody's in everybody's business. You know, there's marketing people working with engineering people and there's finance people in engineering planning offsites. And, and, you know, as a three-time CMO myself, I would spend sometimes 50% of my time in the field. My objective was always to be the most requested executive on a sales call because hmm. I knew that if I couldn't stand up and close a deal or at least help close a deal in front of a customer, how, how the fuck am I going to be able to figure out a strategy for the entire market, right? So that's smart. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, the best sales leaders I know are like that. And the best engineers that I know are, you know, spend some time in the field, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I'm not talking about confusing things or, or not having clear line reporting lines or responsibilities, but 
a company where everybody's kind of up in each other's business, at least in my experience, is, is generally a healthy company. But tell me your experience. Um, uh, I, I agree. And, and again, it's having wisdom on when do I need to respect chain of command and organization versus when do I need to disrespect it, right? And one of the tools that you can put in place to help build this is, is simply metrics and making sure that a person owns a metric and that we all know relative to, you know, Chris driving the improvement of a metric, he can go anywhere in the organization to help do that. That helps give you permission to go cross-functional and not pay attention to the org chart relative to a mission, which is improving or optimizing for a specific metric. So that's why I think such careful planning around what we measure and how we align accountability to metrics and especially putting in place good market facing and customer facing customer experience metrics and then letting the organization know like hey we're we're optimizing for metrics not organizational integrity here right that's one of the counterbalance moves you can do to help have that right balance between you know respect for chain of command versus cutting across the organization and and respecting speed and accountability more got it love it all right john i could talk to you for 20 hours about this book and there's lots of amazing ideas um but i also want to be respectful of your time are there any other things that you want to touch on before we wrap I think, you know, just, you know, the the last notion is like, if you think you're going to innovate and not be misunderstood or not piss other people off, like don't try it, you know, and everything, right? Like, um, and that's, that goes both internally to your company and external to your company. And I would say to some degree, like if others aren't complaining, you're probably truly not changing something. So I think that's the other kind of just confidence level that you have to have to be, to be a, an entrepreneur, or be a change agent within an existing organization. Yeah, sometimes I feel like with companies I'm involved with, I'm I'm dancing on the edge of getting fired all the time. <laughs> and that's one of the things I love about being an advisor is I I, I do a good job at playing playing that role, um, and and I can take chances that sometimes my internal clients can't take, and and I get listened to in different ways um, because of that and everything. So uh, that's sometimes why you need you need external voices. Yeah, I find that. And uh, frankly, I'll say that to people, particularly, you know, normally, hopefully not to senior executives, but to people a little lower down or maybe a little more concerned about hanging out in the C-suite. Like, look, I'll go stand on that landmine for you. I don't give a shit. Completely appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to touch on, John? No, I just want to say I really enjoy listening to you and and your podcast and and, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Well, John, thank you. I'm stoked to hear you're a listener. I'm stoked that you're back for a second time. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, I love your work. I'm, I'm really happy you've written this new book. I think it's going to do great. I think people should read it. And um, keep doing it, man. You're, you're a force for awesomeness in the, in the world. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, John. Okay. Well, there it is. I, uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, with the fantastic John Rossman and this special two-part series we did on Amazon and on Netflix. Now, from startups to large enterprises, NetSuite by Oracle is the number one solution in cloud ERP because it's a complete business solution that will scale with you. If you're a pre-revenue startup with dreams and schemes, all the way through an IPO and beyond. You can start small and grow very big with NetSuite. 
As a matter of fact, 90% of the companies that went public in 2018 run NetSuite. And NetSuite has a complete offering from uh, ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning, to Customer Relationship Management, Analytics, Omnichannel Commerce, HR, and even more. And NetSuite is available to you, and it's surprisingly cost-effective. And as a listener to this podcast, my friends at NetSuite are offering you a unique opportunity to book an hour with a growth expert in your industry. Go to netsuite.com slash different and you can sign up to make that happen. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free one-hour growth review. All right, we would like to thank the legendary John Rossman and his awesome new book, Think Like Amazon. I really enjoyed it. I think you will too. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check it out. Uh, my new podcast on marketing called Lockhead on Marketing, and I want to say a giant thank you. Uh, recently, Lockhead on Marketing became the number one business show on all of Apple Podcasts. That's right, number one. And uh, I know that many of you also listen to Lockhead on Marketing and uh, your outpouring and your shares and your enthusiasm for the podcast uh, is outstanding. Thank you so much. My dear friends at bottleneck.online, these are the folks helping to scale you with the help of a virtual assistant. Check them out, bottleneck.online. If you want to learn how to design and dominate your own market categories, why not check out my friends at Category Design Advisors at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurs are reading on the internet today. Check it out. GrowWire.com. Another source of content I uh, read all the time are my friends at the Marketing Journal. Check out MarketingJournal.org. And speaking of marketing, if you want to do legendary marketing in Australia, check out my friends at Rapid Media at RapidMedia.com.au for legendary marketing in Australia. And um, let's not forget about my dear friends, at the Front Row Foundation. This is the nonprofit helping you make dreams happen for people whose lives are being threatened. And um, it's, a, it's, it's an, a horribly challenging thing to face down the potential of the end of your own life. And having been part of sponsoring uh, these experiences, these events, um, it really is incredibly moving. Check out the Front Row Foundation. Uh, .org when you get a chance. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. Um, the producer of this podcast is Jamie J and Sarah Knox. We are edited by the incomparable Mike D, and show notes by the legendary Diane Gervasio. Uh, gotta warn you that this podcast clearly goes better with cocktails. You can always find us on the interweb at lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. If you must send email to us, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Don't forget to buy John's Crazy Socks. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Remember that today's solutions are tomorrow's pro- problems, and there's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Teach peace. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, the podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of the board at PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, of course, follow your difference.